Our sermon text this evening is uh, James chapter 2, the whole chapter. These are the words of God. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it guides us. We ask for your illumination. We ask for your inspiration. We ask for your conviction, for your encouragement, for your help as we come now to it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. Please be seated. A couple weeks ago, I said that one of the marks of maturity is the ability to make distinctions. One of the marks of maturity is the ability to make distinctions. And uh, just as Proverbs gives us a bunch of contrasts, distinctions, rich and poor, wise and fool, so also James is this kind of New Testament Proverbs that's giving us all kinds of pairs to compare and contrast as well. Uh, James is going to give us a bunch of uh, distinctions here in this chapter. Now, uh, one of the primary uh, jobs of a a ruler, of a king, which is what Proverbs is all about, training a a prince to be a king, is a king has to make 
judgments. He has to make distinctions. He has to determine uh, which way to go, whether to wage war or not. And uh, especially here in, in James chapter 2, we find ourselves in the setting of a law court. So really, this whole chapter, just imagine we're sitting in a courtroom, and, and we'll, we'll see more how this unfolds. Uh, the question that James is deal dealing with here is, how are Christians to judge righteously? You could, you could say, how, could, uh, how should Christians judge their neighbor? Right? We, we know we're not supposed to judge in certain ways, but if you think about it, isn't judging someone inescapable? You can't really not judge someone. It's actually kind of hard to not have an opinion about someone. So how should we think about judging other people, or specifically in this case, judging potential conflict in the church? Well, that's what James is going to uh, uh, teach us here. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 5, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints, that's you guys, will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more then things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? So think about that. God says the saints are going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. And here in Corinth, you have a dispute in the church, and they're taking it to uh, secular courts. Okay? So th there's a place for uh, a church court, and that's specifically what James is, is talking about here. To hear a case, uh, someone that's wise enough to hear a case, to establish the facts, to consider all of the evidence, and then determine the outcome. So uh, consider this, this sermon, this passage, a God's inspired guide to judging your neighbor. How not to do it and how to judge righteously. Uh, and the way I want to get at this, because there, there's a ton of stuff here, uh, is by looking at the different kinds of faith that James presents here. So uh, if you look at verse 1, he begins by saying, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Now what is partiality. Uh, in Greek, it literally means to accept someone's faith. So, so that, that's the idiom, to respect or accept someone's faith. The King James has a respecter of persons. And this means that you favor or honor or accept someone, not based on God's standards, but based on carnal, worldly, uh, personal, fleshly standards. In verses 2 to 3, he then gives this example of what partial faith looks like. He says, there's two men who walk into your assembly, and the word there is synagogue. One appears to be rich, he's wearing gold rings, he's got on nice clothes, and the other appears to be poor, his clothes are dirty. So where do you tell them to sit? Well, the man who has partial faith, who holds the faith with partiality, shows favoritism to the rich man. He gives him the best seat in the house. And then he says to the poor man, uh, you can just stand up. Or, uh, you can come and sit here at my footstool. Now, uh, think about this idea of the footstool. It's actually very peculiar that it shows up here because 
every other time the, that word or that idea even, footstool, shows up in the New Testament, it's always referring to God's footstool. So think about a psalm we sing, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I make your enemies, what? A, a footstool. Or Isaiah uh, 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So what, what is the meaning, though, of, of this footstool? Well, if you were to look inside of the tabernacle, there are different levels of holiness, starting from the outer courts, the most holy place, and then the most holy place. And in the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And it's really important if you just want to understand the Bible, you should go online sometime and just look up, like, what did the Ark of the Covenant look like? What did the temple or the tabernacle look like? Because uh, it actually shows up here with this concept of the footstool. So the Ark of the Covenant is this box, and inside of it is the law of God, the law of the covenant. And on top of this box, you had these two cherubim. These are these uh, angelic beings with wings. And, and they're facing what's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the cover. It, it's what encloses uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So you actually have to take off the mercy seat in order to go inside and grab what, what was in there, the, the rod of Aaron, uh, maybe the manna, or the law of the covenant. So if you're imagining this, you have these two cherubim on top of it, and the way that their wings are lifted up like this actually is a seat for God. So you read in Psalm 99, it says, The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. So God, in the most holy place, you go in there, you're going into the courtroom. You're going into the throne room of God, and God is symbolically seated above the cherubim. You think about how uh, the, the Levites had to carry it. So they were poles. They had to carry it like, like this. And this is kind of, if you've ever seen movies from way back, if someone's very wealthy, and this is before, you know, uh, maybe you don't, you don't have horses pulling you, you, you would just have servants carrying you around. You're sitting on a throne. Well, that's actually what's happening here in, in the, with the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the most holy place. So this is God's throne. And you think about the, the mercy seat, that is the footstool. The footstool, so God's sitting up there on top of the cherubim, and then where are his feet? They're right on top of the mercy seat. And you see this, uh, else, the, uh, this connection between the mercy seat and the footstool. So when we're praying uh, that God would footstool his enemies, we're not just talking about God killing all of his, en his enemies. This is actually a, a promise that God is going to save it everyone. It's, it's a promise that the world is going to be at God's throne receiving mercy. Now, taking all of that and going back to now the footstool that James is talking about, and think about what this, this person with partial faith is doing. Well, first of all, what they have done is put themselves in the place of God. So that there's two seats you can sit in. You can sit in the judgment seat, that's, that's God's throne. Or you can sit in the mercy seat, at the footstool. And so here, the, the man with partial faith is just assuming that this man, who appears to be poor, he's really in need of mercy. So he's like kind of telling him to get in line for, for the, the food. Um, if, if they're giving away something, all right, yeah, you go, over, you go over there. But notice what James says here. He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves, becoming a judge with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich 
in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? And so James is saying here that it's actually the poor man who is the rich one. Right? So you've judged just based on what someone has worn and you've made a distinction there, but you actually have it backwards. He says it's actually the rich who drag you into court. They're the ones who need mercy. Here it's the poor man who is rich in faith. He is royalty and you've dishonored him by making this assumption, by telling him to come and sit there. So this is what partiality is. The sin of partiality, it makes assumptions about people based on mere externals rather than what God has said about them in his word. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, God wants to train us to think the way he thinks, to see beyond what is on the outside. Now let's think about what are some examples of partiality in our world today. And may I'll just give this to you. What, what are some examples of partiality that we see in our culture right now? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just say it. Is our, is our world a perfectly just place? <laughs> yeah, what are some examples of partiality? What was that? Me Too movement. Can, can you explain a, a little more? Yeah, where an accusation is already the, the sentence of condemnation. So yeah, think about uh, believe all women. Believe all women is pure partiality. Think about this. It, it just assumes that because someone is a woman, or, I don't know, identifies as a woman, it's hard to tell these days, that they are telling the truth. But let me ask you this. Let me ask the women. Have you ever met a uh, lying woman before? (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. Women don't lie. Think about the examples in Scripture. I think of Lady Folly. I think of Jezebel. I think about Potiphar's wife. Right? What, What does Potiphar's wife do? She attempts to seduce Joseph. Joseph resists her sexual advances, and then she says, he raped me, okay? But women don't lie, right? But believe all women. This is partiality. Uh, What about critical race theory, critical theory? This is actually something that originated in the law courts in order to achieve more uh, what they would call equitable outcomes, So uh, they would look at various uh, socioeconomic standards, uh, gender, what's your your race, what's your family upbringing, and they would say, well, if we're having all of this race committing this crime and being sentenced for X amount of years, but but let's say, for example, it's all Asian people, I'm Asian, it's all the Asians (laughs) that are committing the crimes and being convicted, and they're getting thrown into prison, and critical race theory comes along and says, we need equal representation of all the races, and I don't know, all the, and both equally, men and women. So this is just a fact, 
men commit the majority of crimes and are convicted for it. So overwhelmingly so. So cri critical race theory has something to say about that. And then it wants to look at how all of these factors intersect with one another. So if you are of a specific race and a specific gender, or if you have a, a sexual orientation preference, all of those things compound and and we're, the judge is supposed to uh, determine whether you are innocent or guilty based on those factors. Now, if you think about it, none of those things are uh, irrelevant to the cause of justice. I actually want to know what the gender is of the person. I want to know their race. I want to know as much as I can about them so I can get the big picture. But where uh, critical race theory goes wrong is when it turns those categories into the determination of whether they are innocent or guilty without actually hearing anything about what they did. All right, so, so this is pure partiality and it's been pushed in the courts and we're seeing, uh, seeing it all over the place today. Uh, consider what scripture has to say about this. Proverbs 18.13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. You hear a matter, uh, you hear, uh, you answer something before uh, you hear it and it's a folly and a shame to you. This is what uh, critical race theory does. Or Deuteronomy 13. It says that, that if you hear the report of a crime, someone did something bad, it says, then you shall inquire, you shall search out and ask diligently. And only after it, it has been proven true shall you carry out the judgment. So uh, scripture has this, uh, it's very nervous about condemning people unjustly. It would rather let guilty people go free than punish people who are innocent. And this is one of those principles right here. You really need to search out, establish the facts. So critical theory is what happens when uh, people abandon God's law and they really come up with their own. And uh, when, you read, when you read like the origins of, of critical theory, it, you kind of can sympathize with them because there is real injustice in the world. There is real partiality in our courts, right? So, so they're thinking, all right, if the American law system is unjust, well, these people are not Christians. They think, well, how can we get outcomes that we prefer, okay? So you're gonna have partiality in both directions, in all these different directions, as soon as you say, we don't actually need God's law to determine what justice is. Or think about um, our tax laws. How many of you have ever filed your taxes before, okay? Yeah, so you look at your paycheck and you're like, wow, where does all of this money uh, go to? Well, <laughs> we have these things in America, it didn't always used to be this way, called tax brackets. Do you know what a tax bracket is? It's partiality, right? Saying uh, the more you make, the more the government will take from you. When in scripture and you look at taxation, how, how does it work? Well, there's a single head tax, poll tax, that's just applied to everyone regardless. Or think about the tithe. It's just a percentage, and it's something that everyone pays. But our government thinks, I know what we can do. We can tax these people more and then come up with all kinds of loopholes to get around it. And what you actually have is rich people who can afford to uh, pay tax lawyers to do this stuff for them. You need to hire someone just to understand the tax, the tax code. They're actually able to get around all this. And then the people like you and me who are ignorant about this stuff, we have better, better things to do than we're the ones who are uh, punished by it. 
So uh, lots of other examples out there, but partiality is a big deal. It's everywhere you go, and that's because it's, it's our like default mode of reading the world. We didn't come into this world born with the law written on our hearts, right? So we, we have our law, Aaron's law, and so I, I judge people based on what I think. And so all of us have that, and we have to bring that into conformity to what God says. So how do we do this? How can we judge righteously? James tells us in verses 8 to 13. In verse 8 he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Okay, so this is actually very straightforward if you think about it. It's hard, but it's straightforward. Uh, judge your neighbor as you would judge yourself. Judge your neighbor the way that God judges you. Just use that same exact standard. Now here comes the dilemma, verses 10 and 11. James says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James is saying that unless you're in the never broken any law camp, right? unless you're in that category, you're in the I'm guilty of breaking all of God's law category. So th this is all of us. All of us are guilty as transgressors. This is because uh, the law of God is just like this, this perfect mirror, this perfect piece of glass. You, you just put one chip in it. It doesn't matter how small it is. It's still a broken piece of glass now. This is, this is like windshield repair kind of thing. So unless you're in that category of I'm perfect, James tells us in verses 12 to 13 how we should act. He says this, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So this is the, the, really the riddle of the Bible, the riddle of the gospel. How can God be both just and merciful? How can he let you and me transgressors of the law, guilty, into his holy heaven. Uh, we tend to think God, like, owes us forgiveness, right? The, the, Jesus died to owe us, because we're entitled, at least, to uh, the chance of being forgiven, right? This is how we think. But that's not the way Scripture thinks. The, the entire book of Romans is actually written to justify the righteousness of the gospel. The, the theodicy, the problem of evil, is how can God let all of us who are evil into heaven? Okay, So this is the way Scripture thinks, and it's totally the opposite of how we think. So this is the riddle of the gospel. God is not partial. God is no respecter of persons. So how can he let anyone in? Okay, of course, we know the answer to this is Jesus, his death and his resurrection. In Christ, we receive the penalty for our sins. So you died for your sins. You died for your sins in Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But that is not all that happened. In Christ, we also receive his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect law-keeping. That's because it's not enough to just be forgiven. You actually need to be righteous for God to let you in. Remember the tabernacle. You could only go into the most holy place if you were the high priest, and that was once a year, and that was by the blood of bulls and goats. Okay? That was the, that's what you had to do to get in there. 
And so what Jesus has done is he, he has removed all of that. His blood brings us to the throne. It says in Romans 4, a righteousness shall be imputed, that's counted, credited to us, who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now here's, I think, a good question to ask is, how does what Jesus did 2,000 years ago matter or connect or have any relevance to us living today? How can a guy dying and rising again have anything to do with us? Well, over and over in Scripture, you see this pattern that is faith. Faith is what connects us to God. Faith is what unites us to Jesus. It is the hand that God gives us to grab hold of Christ. Faith is what places God's enemies at his mercy seat. Faith is what brings us to God's footstool. And so then, think about all that God has done for you. And he says, so judge righteously means to judge as one who knows what it's like to sit at God's footstool. To judge as someone who has received righteous mercy. So this is how we love and judge our neighbor as ourself. Now, uh, let's play this out. What does this actually look like in real life? Because you might think, God has forgiven me of all my sins, so maybe there isn't any judgment ever for anyone. Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that you never punish sin. Romans 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So there's a difference between mercy and lawlessness. Mercy is not antinomianism. Mercy is not lawlessness. God's mercy is both righteous and gracious. This means that murderers can be forgiven if they repent, but they still will be put to death by the civil magistrate. To judge without partiality, then, means we call sin what God calls sin. It means we deal with sin the way that God tells us to deal with sin. If love can cover it, then it covers it. If it can't, then there needs to be confession and forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. The cross provides us with a way of actually dealing with sin righteously. It also means, it also means that we distinguish between sins and crimes the way that God distinguishes between sins and crimes. It means we apply the penalties and punishment that God commands for those crimes. Now, uh, because we live in a very unjust society with unjust laws, this gets uh, complicated at times. But remember, anything that gets missed by the courts here has a higher court of appeal. God's justice, heaven, will deal with it one way or another. So this means that sometimes... Righteous judgment means turning the other cheek. Sometimes it means defending yourself. Sometimes it means taking your case before the church court or even the civil courts. But in all of this, we leave vengeance, justice in the hands of God and those he has ordained over us. Ultimately, what this means, if you want to have a faith that is without partiality, is you need to know God's law really well. You need to know what to do in that situation. You need to know uh, how God's law would have you go about it. It's actually very hard to be impartial, if you think about it. And uh, I, I think about there, there's a squabble between two kids. 
in the other room. You don't see it. They both come. They tell you a story. What, what do you do? <laughs> well, God, God has a law about that. You, you might think it's, it's the one that's always getting in trouble. I'm a smack up. Right? But that would actually be partiality. You, you, don't, you don't know what happened. Okay? So, so God gives us all kinds of laws and rules for knowing how uh, to deal with this. And so it's, it's helpful if you just assume that you are a partial person. Okay? You're, you're going to judge people unrighteously, and you need God's word to help you uh, change that. Now, uh, the rest of our chapter deals with this relationship now between faith and works. And so I want to briefly look at this uh, distinction that James makes between, between living faith and dead faith. So we've seen partial faith, impartial faith. Now we have living faith and dead faith. What is dead faith? What are its qualities? Well, dead faith, according to James in verse 14, says it lacks good works. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And the answer, of course, is no. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A dead faith that is without works cannot save anybody. And as he says more pointedly in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, uh, maybe your Protestant alarm bells are going off, but if you're, if you're well taught, they wouldn't. Uh, because there is, there is no contradiction, I would argue, there's not even friction between James and Paul. And there's lots of people who think that if James and Paul were in the same room, they would, they would have a disagreement. I don't know, maybe they would talk about their vocabulary, but I actually think James and Paul are in perfect harmony with one another. So uh, let, let's show how uh, they do not contradict. Uh, first of all, uh, the works that James is describing here are genuine good works done in faith. So I don't know if you've ever been in one of those churches where they always talk about how your good works are filthy rags. Well, that, that's not what he's talking about here. Right? Uh, the works that are filthy rags are what Paul calls works of the law, which are by definition works that are not done by faith. That's, that's actually the distinction that Paul makes. There's works of the law, and, that, and then there are good works, good works that are done in faith. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. There are good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So uh, good works for James are kind of the equivalent of fruit for Paul. Fruit of the Spirit is how uh, kind of Paul describes it. These works are different than works of the law in Galatians 2.16, which says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And James would simply say, yeah, amen. The only good works that justify are works of faith, whereas works of the law are, by definition, done apart from faith. So, two different kinds of works that they're talking about here. Now, just as there's different kinds of works, there's also different kinds of justification. Uh, the justification that James is describing is, I believe, the same as what Paul says in Romans 2.13. Paul says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, Paul's not contradicting himself, teaching justification by works. He's talking about a different kind of justification. So we would say a justification in James's sense and in Paul's Romans 2.13 sense, uh, we might call vindication. 
It's almost the justification of your justification. It's the proof that you are a justified person. Some people would uh, make a distinction between what they call uh, initial justification and final justification. Uh, Jesus himself talks about this uh, talks about this in Matthew 25. So remember he's separating the sheep and the goats. He's going to say, all right, you can come into the kingdom of heaven. No, you cannot. And what is the criteria by which Jesus judges these people? This is the, this is the final judgment. Yeah, it, it was based on works of mercy. Did you come in visit me when I was in prison? Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? So it, there's nothing about faith in Matthew 25. It's all about works, and the works that it's describing are whether there are the works that James is talking about here, good works done in faith. And isn't this what James has been saying all along? He says in verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So if you've not done those good works of mercy, giving the little kid the glass of cold water, which God says he will reward, if that hasn't happened, if you haven't done that in faith, then there's no good works. Your faith, uh, James would say, is a dead faith. What else? What are the other qualities of dead faith? Well, we see in verse 19 that dead faith is monotheistic. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So you can go to church, you can come to CRF, you can recite the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and James would say, yeah, the, the demons know the creed too. The, the demons could school you if you went to, to seminary. Right. And, and the thing is about the demons is that at least they tremble. <laughs> and, and isn't this the state of the church in the West right now, where demons have more fear of God than most Christians do. Right? Demons have more fear of God. They tremble before God. They believe He is one, and they tremble, and then we have uh, you know, gay bishops. We, we've got lesbian Presbyterians. Le, uh, the Lesbyterians, I think, is what Doug, Doug calls them. <laughs> so that, there's, there's lots of people who claim, I believe in God. It's dead faith. In a certain sense, James would say, it's actually worse than demonic faith, because at least they fear God. You can believe that God is one. You can believe the creed. You, you can believe that God is triune. But if that faith has no works, then it takes you to the same place that the demons go to, into the lake of fire. <clears throat> well, if that's dead faith, what does living faith looks li look like? <clears throat> James gives us two examples, Abraham and Rahab. When was Abraham justified by faith? Well, it was, was when he simply believed God, that God could make his descendants as numerous as the stars. It says in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, when was Abraham justified by works? James tells us, when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. That was Genesis 22. So in Genesis 15, he's justified by faith. And in Genesis 22, he's justified by works. And so living faith here believes what God says, even if it means sacrificing the thing that is most precious to you. Here it was Isaac, the son of promise. 
And yet Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead if he sacrificed him. So living faith believes in resurrection. Living faith is willing to give up, to sacrifice anything, even the thing that is most precious to you if God tells you to. The second example that James gives us is Rahab. And you'll notice we have this uh, Abraham, the patriarch, the, the circumcised man, and now here you have a Gentile woman. She's called a, a harlot. And James says, likewise, meaning like Abraham, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? And uh, this is a very fascinating passage because if you read uh, Joshua 2 where the spies come to her, the king actually shows up to her house and says, bring out the spies. Tell me where they went. And what does she do? Does she, does she Romans 13, submit to <laughs> government authority? No, she says, I don't know where they went. I, oh, I think they went out that way. You should, you should get after them. There's this great story, I might get this wrong, about uh, Athanasius. This is the, uh, Athanasius, great uh, early church father defending the orthodox uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And the dude was exiled, I think, seven times. So he was kicked out and brought back, kicked out and brought back seven times. And on one of these uh, occasions when he's escaping from them, so they're out, they're out to kill him. He's in, he's in a boat on, on this, I don't know, a river or a lake getting away. And soldiers actually pursuing Athanasius pass him. And they ask him, have you seen that Athanasius? And he says, you're near him, keep going. <laughs> and went the other way. <laughs> that would be one of those, those examples where you, you, don't, uh, you actually uh, tell them the truth, but it, they take it uh, sarcastically. So, so that works out. Uh, but, but here, Rahab, she, she lies. Right? And what I like to call these, these are righteous lies. This isn't breaking God's command. This is righteous deception. It honors God. It pleases God. And it was this that actually justified her. So think about what does living faith do? Sometimes living faith lies. Tells righteous lies for righteous cause. In this case, it saves her life. It saves her family. And eventually she becomes a woman in the lineage of the Lord Jesus. And this was all because Rahab had a living faith. Scripture says she was justified by works. Close with this. James summarizes this whole uh, discussion on faith and works with a very uh, striking metaphor. And I think it's worth us uh, meditating on this. Verse 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So think about the picture here. And notice that faith is not the spirit that animates the body. Faith is the dead corpse. Faith is the body lying on the ground, and it is actually works here that are the animating spirit of faith. And we tend to think of this backwards. We think faith is what keeps the body alive when it is actually good works that give life to your body. You can think about it this way. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the more that you give, the more you give of your, your love, your good works, of yourself, the more alive you actually become. The more like Christ you actually are becoming. And this is because God is the most 
generous person ever. What do we have that we have not received from him? All of this is a gift of grace. God gives us a body. He gives us a spirit. He gives us faith, and he gives us good works, and he gives us reward for the good works that he gave us faith to do. (laughs) For from him and to him and through him are all things. This is the goodness and generosity of God. There is this promise in Revelation 14, 13 that says this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. In a very, very short time, shorter than you can imagine, all of us are going to rest from our works. We're going to die. So we should work hard with living faith, with impartial faith, believing and trusting that our works will follow us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we confess that we are a very partial people. We don't know how to judge righteously. We judge carnally according to the flesh all the time. We judge without mercy, even though we have received nothing but mercy from you. God, we ask that this would not be so, that you would make us wise, that you would make us wise in the scriptures, to meditate on your law day and night, to be like that tree planted by streams of living waters that bears fruit in every season. Make us to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, and amen.